don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Good morning, welcome to Second Captain Saturday And let me just say, right off the bat I don't see any reason why you would enjoy the show today I'm sorry, I'm sorry I meant to say I don't see any reason why you wouldn't enjoy the show today Excellent It's sort of a double double negative So you can put Mm. that in I think that probably clarifies things pretty good by itself (laughs) Hi Murph, hi Ken I won't hurt you (laughs) I had to do it Murph, I'm sorry No, no, it was good You're very welcome back to Moscow, I should say Ken Oh, thank you, Owen. Good to see you. I'm not sure if the would wouldn't defence is going to get the American president out of his latest scandal. The New York Times reporting last night that his former lawyer, Michael Cohen, secretly recorded a conversation with Trump two months before the election in which they discussed payments to a former Playboy model who said she had an affair with Trump. These are payments that he has previously Mm. denied any knowledge of. Now, this isn't to be confused with the Stormy Daniels case. This is another alleged payment to a woman called Karen McDougal. It's been a rough old week. Mm. For I, ju- I thought those guys were good friends. I can't believe that they were secretly <laughs> taping each other's conversations about delicate matters such as that. What did you make of his performance against your new best pal, Vladimir? <laughs> well, it was, it was an interesting thing to watch last week. There's a, there's a piece on the front of the Irish Times Weekend Review here by Fintan O'Toole, which um, he recently did a piece about trial runs for fascism, yeah, which became, I think, yeah, the, yeah. became the most read piece ever on the Irish Times website. It was excellent and extremely scary, Ken. Mm. But he sort of returned to this area with the piece about the Helsinki summit. It says, if Europe is not to follow the US, it will have to wake up to the political epidemic that Putin has started. And I think if I have a problem with this piece, it's actually that headline. I think it's... I don't, I don't agree that this is something which has been started, but this isn't just because I've been in Russia for the last few weeks. Right, here we go. <laughs> Putin's useful idiot strikes again. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not. It, it's it's kind Whatever of like, he's paying you, kid. There's this there's this sort of notion that this is like I always feel it's a slightly dangerous road to go down when you say, well, you know, it, the the piece is sort of talking about the 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 um, behavior of Trump. He seems to Putin seems to be controlling him. What's going on? Uh, but the notion that he could have been elected because of something that was cooked up in Russia seems a little bit far fetched. I mean, I remember the during that campaign. Uh, Obama, who when he when he sort of thought oh, I'd better get out there and start making some speeches here for Hillary Clinton, uh, gave one speech where he talked about the Republican Party, saying they've been feeding their base all kinds of crazy for years, and started listing off a bunch of things. And I can, you know, when you th- when you remember that, was it always Russia who was giving them the the talking points, who was teaching them that you know taxation is theft and that you know socialized medicine is communism and. Uh, you know, everybody must worship the military. You know, was this was this a Russian idea? I mean, he, there's a paragraph in, in, in this piece where he says, um, the conditions that make Russia so miserable, elections that can't be trusted, news that is composed of alternative facts, ruled by a self-aggrandizing oligarchy, media that are either compliant or excoriated as enemies of the people, a politics of toxic self-pity, are being successfully ingest, injected into the West. Mm. Clearly, you could say those things about the United States and the United Kingdom, which I imagine it's why Finton has written it that way but are we really saying that this is because the Russians have kind of managed to you know inject this into the conversation I mean there's a piece on the net on the next page of this weekend review by David McWilliams where he talks about a speech that Margaret Thatcher gave in 1988 in Bruges in which she kind of laid out 
the Eurosceptic view. You know, oh, we've, we've had enough of this integration in Europe. Uh, and he kind of talks about how that sort of laid the ground for what we have now, Brexit, you know, 30 years later. Now, say what you like about Margaret Thatcher. I don't think that she was saying what the Russians were telling her to say. We're, we're talking about a different Russia in 1988. But what I'm saying is that I think they managed to cook this up without much help from the Russians. I think the Russians were fanning flames that were already there. Our guest today is one of the very best comedians and actors in the business. You'll know her from some of the biggest shows out there, like 8 out of 10, Cats, Live at the Apollo and The Fall. Ashling B is on the way. You may well have read Ashling's beautiful piece about her late father that she wrote in The Guardian and The Irish Times last year, which touched a huge number of people. She's also part of a new Netflix comedy special and has written and will star in a new series for Channel 4. So we can't wait to have Ashling B on the show this morning. And she will have, Murph, Ashling will have her one and only chance to compete for the second captain's greatest non-sports person sports person title this very morning. Please remind us of the not very intimidating standards being set so far. Could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Yes, last week's guest Paul Howard scored a header with some with a pair of glasses on in an under-11 match which earned him glory at the time as well as twisted glasses but alas only earned him 72 points last week. This season's second captain Saturday greatest non-sports person sports person leader remains David Baddiel who scored 75 points. Kildare's Ashling B comes from a family rich in sporting tradition we're told so we're expecting big things this morning on. 51551 is a number to text if you want to get in touch you can tweet us at second captains Ashling B is coming right up this is Second Captain Saturday. long way to find a better tune than that one to get you going on a Saturday morning. Let's be honest, Teenage Kicks by the undertones there. Ashling B has arrived. Ashling, you're very welcome to Second Captain Saturday. Hello, gentlemen of sport. How are you all? <laughs> we're good. good we're good. good. Mm-hmm. Now, people know you as a comedian. As but not actor, as a sports star. But not as a sports superstar. <laughs> this is what this next well, half an hour is all about. <laughs> Me, finally launching my sporting career. <laughs> Horses is your background. Horses is my background. <laughs> <laughs> That's not really a question. That's but, uh, a, yeah, sounded like an accusation. <laughs> yeah. um, yes, so I grew up in uh, just outside of Kildare Town to an equine vet of a father. Uh, that's not again a, a slander that's genuinely a job and my mother is a retired professional flat race jockey right so tell so. us about your mother's career then as, as best you know how did she end up becoming a flat race jockey how did she go well she comes from a very horsey background my uh, grandfather Con Maloney and kind of agricultural background he actually was one of the founders of Macrona Firma of the Irish Farmers Association if there's any English people listening in who don't understand our <laughs> national tongue um, and so they grew up with lots of animals around the house all the time and my granny uh, was also a big horse rider she was an amazing woman and so all of like my aunties and that uh, all rode growing up and my mother was the one who I think was the most passionate about it to, to take it to a professional level. She, interestingly enough, she worked at RACE, which is a racing apprentice centre of education where they train young jockeys in Kildare for about 30 years as a teacher. But when she wanted to 
go and train there as a jockey. They wouldn't let any girls in. Right. And because of her talent, uh, she was set up in Con Collins's yard and they kind of spotted her as being really good. But And then f- and then she went on from becoming apprentice to a professional. But when she went back to teach, she could teach in the place. But at, at that point, there was no girls allowed. Right, so initially it was, it was simply this doesn't exist, there aren't yeah. girl jockeys. So there was nobody for her to follow, Yeah, she was quite a, a pioneer for female jockeys. Herself and Joanna Morgan were kind of coming up around the same time. Joanna's still a, a trainer now. And um, and my mother has worked in horse racing all her life. Like, it's it's weird because it's kind of like if, imagine if you were brought up in a town full of magicians and both of your parents were magicians and everyone in, in that you knew and every the town's industry was fueled by magicians and suddenly you went to Dublin one day and people were like, magicians? You're like, I know, it's so boring. Because <laughs> in Kildare, like loads of people's parents were either jockeys or in the army or, or worked for farriers or um, had something to do with even horses in the army. And so it just felt really normal that everyone had something to do with the horse racing industry in Kildare. My summer job was working on the stud farm in, on the Irish National Stud as a tour guide. So it just felt really, and even still, people were like, oh, you should write more stand-up about that. I'm like, but what angle? Isn't everybody's mother a jockey? Um <laughs> But I'm extremely proud of her because it is interesting how much it kind of, there aren't, uh, there's lots more now, but there aren't as many women in my industry in, in comedy um, as there should and could and hopefully will be. But it is interesting growing up watching a woman in a male dominated industry and kind of like ploughing ahead. So her work as a jockey is is very similar to, it, there are lots of parallels in terms of her career uh, with mine I remember she always said that like if she won a race it was because the horse was fast but if, if she lost a race oh it was a female jockey yeah. so that's what it was yeah. um, so there was always some kind of a, you never got to just be there on your own merit sometimes but it didn't stop her she's a very determined character yeah Katie Walsh she doesn't like the phrase female jockey yeah. but and just prefers calling it her profession a, a jockey but yeah. in the 70s it was obviously just very unusual, almost unique in Ireland. Yeah. Your everyday life was you being the person that was different in, in any room that you were in. I think, you know, there's a lovely book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And it's all about this idea that there's no really such thing as a genius because or someone who managed to kind of brave the odds and do something on their own. Because in many ways, the people who come up through a certain situation are a product of all of the like little moments of luck in your environment. So, uh, for example, in my mother's environment, my mother was a or my grandmother was a matriarch. She uh, I remember I don't remember. I remember during the farmers protest of 1966. <laughs> But uh, I always remember everyone talking about the fact that my granny led all the uh, farmers marching on horseback up or, or all the way to Dublin to protest about whatever the farmers were protesting about at the time. Mm. And so my mother grew up in an environment, a matriarchy, where there was seven women and one son, my uncle. And in that sense, you didn't, ha- you weren't a girl, you were one of a, the group of people. And so you're not necessarily alienated. And my granddad definitely supported her career and 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 everything that she wanted to do and was very proud of her and really put an emphasis on education as well as just the horse riding and I think I had the same thing growing up I grew up in a um an all-female family. I was the funniest person in my family. I was in an all-female primary school and secondary school. I was the funniest person in my school. I mean, that's to be debated by everyone else in the school, but I'm, I'm going to... They're not here now, are they? I, I can only speak for myself. <laughs> Have they gotten to, to my heights in the comedy game? Probably not. Have they made the second Captain's radio show? <laughs> no. Um, 
And so by the time I got to 18 and went to university, I had no idea that there weren't women in comedy. And even I remember watching the TV, it was Deirdre O'Kane or Tommy Tiernan. And so by the time people started telling me I was weird and it was odd and people started going, or you're female or you're a girl, I was like, am I? I just never realised. Up to that point, I'd managed to get away with being a person. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I started being kind of segregated. But I, as hard as it has been at a various a variety of times, because it, those little moments, those little niggles push away at you, uh, at your mindset and your confidence sometimes. Um, that inner... The intrinsic thing. The intrinsic thing, is, thing yeah. which has been helped by my mother's determination and also in, in on a very simple way like uh, my dad died when I was young all the men in, who my mother knew were jockeys and uh, I had like two granddads so I've never been intimidated by men present company excluded of course <laughs> you're both very intimidating but for me men were just like small older dead so by the time I got into these <laughs> yeah, yeah. environments where there are lots of men I'm like men aren't it are they oh I just didn't realise I was supposed to be scared of you guys and it's an amazing role model to have the, yeah. what you describe your mother doing there it was mostly in Ireland but I understand she, was, she would have gone off to the UK and Australia Australia in Australia, a big way yeah, yeah. actually there's, there's still a way room somewhere in Australia named Helen's Way Room the way room for those of you who don't know is where they wow. weigh the jockeys yeah because she was the first person on that race course to ride against men right yeah and uh, there's still a way room now at some point I haven't toured in Australia yet, but I'd love to go down if and when I go to Australia I'd love to go and see it was she still active as a jockey when you were growing up yeah I think I I, I pretty much ruined that um, <laughs> with my big you, head you put a stop to that <laughs> thank you uh, all focus on me now thanks mother um, but I think like like she would say that there's a certain point, which is what's kind of sad and maybe a relief in many sports people's careers as opposed to, say, being an entertainer, um, is that there's a certain point you can't go on anymore and you know you've reached your level. And I think my mother felt like, especially if she got married, she had kids and stuff like that, but she also knew, I think it was time because she'd reached a certain level. But she's never been out of the horse racing industry since, like always growing up. There is myself, my sister Sinead, and then my little jockeys. I love my little jockeys. And she educates and looks after a lot of little jockeys and they love her and she loves each and every one of them. She's very cute. Well, we interviewed Claire Balding in the last series. Murphy will remember Mm -hmm. that one. Mm -hmm. Claire Balding also has quite the background in horse racing. Yeah, she She once had breakfast with the Queen. So I'm wondering who's the most famous person who came through your home? Who came through my home? <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Do you know, this is clearly not the right answer you're looking for. But I remember one day, do you remember The Works with Mary Kingston? Yes. Uh, I think we all do. Obviously. Big shout out to uh, all the fans of The Works. Are you laughing? <laughs> we all remember it well. We all remember The Works or Dream Television, as we called it as kids. <laughs> Imagine getting to visit a tennis ball factory to see how tennis balls are made. Wow, oh, wow. Oh, little gal can dream. I remember one time a kid wanted to be a jockey and so they came down to race where my mother was working to do like a week in race and Mammy, without telling us, brought Mary Kingston from RTE out to our actual house and we'd been up on my neighbours and we came down and you know in in like BBC dramas where somebody tells someone a tragedy and they drop a cup to show that it's really funny like your husband's dead (gasps) what not my bill and they just like (laughs) drop the cup we walked into the kitchen to find Mary Kingston and I always remember like dropping a barbie and going (gasps) no and in my wildest dreams I'd only ever imagine getting to speak to Mary Kingston she's like hi girls I see you've loads of um, toys in your bedrooms y'all 
don't like toys. I was like, yeah, man. Yeah, I don't like toys. Oh, like God, yeah. And we couldn't. And she's like, what would you do if you were on the works? And we were like, I can't. Even imagine everything on the works, Mary. And we just clammed up like the most boring children in Ireland. Hang on, you're telling me this is not the answer I wanted. That's a dream answer. So yeah, that's my biggest celeb claim to fame. Is it true that when you introduce your mum to the head of Channel 4 comedy... <laughs> oh, yeah. But I'll let you a, be, a better presenter than I would allow you to tell the so, story. Rather, well, than we I was doing the um, I was doing the comedy gala, which is on at the O2, and it, which is for Great Ormond Street's Children's Hospital, and it's like a big comedy gala, and it's not the best comedy night because you're doing five minute spots on quite a long bill to about I think it's 16 17,000 people uh, at the O2 in London when you do something in an arena that big it's not really made for talking so mm. the sound goes out and goes back but this was my third time and I was like well third time also unlucky um, so why not bring my mother over so I brought my mother over to kind of sit there and um and watch and afterwards we were backstage and I never really know what my mother's going to come out with but um, the Channel 4 comedy person who was kind of my boss at the time came over and was like well done Ashley you know it'll all edit fine I'm like thanks and, <laughs> just said every performer wants thanks, to hear thanks we'll add laughs afterwards and um, Mammy's like why have you taken racing off Channel 4 <laughs> and he was like uh, sorry what she's like I'm a jockey obviously and I'd never mentioned my mother was a jockey <laughs> and I hadn't really introduced this one woman as my mother either so he just has this small Irish woman coming up going why have you taken racing off channel 4 and managed to kind of lay into him until the head of comedy agreed to kind of put horse racing back on I didn't realise your mum was your mum was the <laughs> catalyst for all this amazing you know that sort of idea that um, when you're a small you think all oh, the, chil- the teachers live in the school mm. it's that same idea that everyone in telly just will be able to fix it you are writing a show sense. for Channel 4 about sisters at I the moment am, another yes. speciality subject myself and Sharon Horgan have been writing together for longer than I've been doing stand up so we've been writing together for about 8 years now we've done that many scripts and they've never sort of gotten away and this one is kind of close to my my heart's my little baby and Sharon and I are playing sisters in it and we made the pilot just before Christmas and then we got the news in late fe- March just early March that we went to see it's gone to series so I'm writing it now and it was just like ah the, it's a good sometimes when you make your own work and I'm sure it's the same with you guys who know when you kind of set up your own business and company and all that kind of stuff God it can seem like a slog and sometimes you're like God would someone just give me a thing rather than having to work for it because with stand-up you have to write all your own stuff and mine your own material and sometimes it's you know it's quite a lonely business as well um but when you sort of feel like you've made it all yourself even if it only goes to one series and then they cancel it there's a sense of like well I did that you know uh I we did that together and we kind of made that thing that we're quite proud of which is always a nice kind of feeling a sense of reward so yeah I'm quite proud of the show it's one of it's the called happy af happy which stands AF. for as well it's one of a bunch of projects you're working on at the moment some really impressive stuff a lot of people will be familiar with you as a team captain on eight out of ten cats on various uk panel shows that kind of thing in the us you're part of a new netflix stand-up series so things are going really well for you at the moment Ashley. you've obviously had to graft to get these kind of awards but you're kind of living the dream now is that how it feels can you yes. be satisfied with how it's going or I, are you I, always a little bit as a lot of people are anxious about what comes next I, I always am and I'm not sure if that's a natural uh, I'm sure anyone's like this if you grow up in a single parent family there's a lot of 
uh, always planning ahead and just down the line about life. And it, it is worth remembering to kind of be present sometimes because you can all, I think, being freelance as well. And actually, while we talk about successes, I think it's also important to talk about all the failures. Mm. Like for every Netflix special, there's things that don't work. And as I say, first thing to get away in eight years, I've and maybe something like my 15th script. I've done like 10. I did like one, one year I did 10 or 11 pilots of TV shows that never went anywhere. They are the things that make you, but also they're so sad and disappointing. And most of it is grit and pulling yourself back up again. Um, and not, not to say not to uh, relish those moments where it all goes right. But I suppose no one posts photos of themselves on Instagram when you're eating spaghetti hoops out of a tin going, why? <laughs> and actually the show I'm, uh, we're making with Sharon now, the first draft of that I wrote in 12 hours because I was so upset because a show we'd been working on for two years with Channel 4 uh, got, they were like, oh, sorry, after two years, it's oh. not for us. Uh, do you know what it was? I think Dairy Girls got commissioned around the same time and our one was too kind of similar along those vibes. And now I love Dairy Girls. It's so amazing. Yep. But uh, it, I was like, oh, no, something else. So I wrote like this in 12 hours. But now that's turned out to be the Brilliant. thing that's gone ahead. So, yeah. You've mentioned a couple of times that you're from a single parent family, that your dad... Your dad died when you were three and um, yes. died by suicide. Mm-hmm. And you wrote an absolutely beautiful article about this in The Guardian last year. People might have read it in the Irish Times as well. What sort of a reaction have you had since putting all this out there? Um, uh, quite incredible, really. I suppose um, a big part of why I wrote it was I remember uh, when I... Oh, sorry. Um... Um, the reason I sort of wrote the article was A, to put something in my own words because once you start, once you're sort of in the public eye, people ask questions and stuff and you know you're going to get flummoxed in an interview or something like that. But also when I was growing up there were just no stories anywhere, which sort of makes sense because uh, like suicide was decriminalised in Ireland in only 1989 so two years after my dad died um, and people still say committed suicide and you can only commit a crime so like the language around it is still pretty bogged down in a weird way. Um, The reaction from it has been very overwhelming at times because from having something that was your private family issue in many ways and even even within the family private in certain circles that we didn't sort of talk about it at all to within literally an hour as soon as it kind of hit the presses in, in, in the UK and Ireland suddenly like people coming up to me in the pub knowing about something that was sort of my story you feel a little bit like you've made a product Mm. out of your thing which is there are certain things I decide to talk about on stage and that I don't and it was very odd to have that sort of feeling of like the amount literally that weekend and since I've probably had I can't even count the thousands of messages I've read. So this was the this is the most personal thing in your world, and yeah, and suddenly, very suddenly everybody knows about it. It must be kind of yeah, overwhelming. and I don't uh, overwhelming, overwhelming for my family, and without a doubt, I don't regret it at all, because it's one of those subjects that we need to talk more about because I don't think people know how to talk about it because it's so bloody tragic Mm -hmm. and it feels so and you're like can you make comedy out of it of course you can because in all those moments you have to laugh and I grew up in a house and a family with a huge amount of emphasis on humour and laughter and my mother's grey crack and so all of our lives humour was our coping mechanism sometimes of course our way we used to avoid talking about things but a lot Mm -hmm. of the times our method of coping and I wanted to sort of talk about it in a manner that's not so maudlin 
And I felt like all the chat around it is always very maudlin, which means that people feel like they're going to ruin the atmosphere if they start talking about it. And, well, a couple of things I found from the thousands of messages I got in touch. First of all, I wanted to reply to everyone, but you couldn't. And you felt like every reply was going to be like if you just wrote an XX, like it was going to be in some way unsatisfactory when someone has poured their heart out to you. And um, but the main thing I found was most of the people who got in touch with their with their stories were predominantly men. Uh, men privately messaging me who a lot of dads a lot of fathers who hadn't been able to talk about being able to cope um, a, a vast majority of the amount of people who've been in touch about women who taken their own lives many of the people had known that their wives or girlfriends or daughters or sister had been ill for a long time and predominantly a lot of the stories with the men were we just had no idea mm. I mean he did seem a bit down but we had just no idea and it really made me I have this analogy at the moment. Uh, I really wish I spoke football, like the language of football. <laughs> and I have this thing with my friend Bradley, who's like a, a kind of um, a, an English guy who does not talk about his feelings, but loves football so much. And he is a fantasy football league. And I'm trying to teach him the language of emotion in exchange for like some football skills <laughs> because women aren't encouraged to talk about football growing up at all or sports. We're always allowed to just like have a load of periods, you know, 24 days a month yeah, yeah. to get out of PE, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> and we're never encouraged to... and then any woman who enters into football or sport tends to be treated like a unicorn and then the same thing with men who are very emotionally articulate everyone's like oh my god he's so emotionally articulate can you believe it rather than there being any sort of socially acceptable way to teach boys and men from a young age to articulate their language it's about having the emotional language to express yourself and that that has come across so overwhelmingly if you have kids and young boys and young boys in school if you're teaching young boys the language, emotional language, that is the biggest thing we can do. It's so, I talked about this recently on Adam Buxton's podcast, yeah, so I hope yeah, you don't mind me crossing over no, on absolutely. it. Absolutely, no, no, it's fascinating. We listen, it was um, gorgeous, yeah. But it, it's so overwhelming to exist sometimes, and it's so overwhelming to try with all your problems and being a parent or not being a parent or getting out of a relationship or dealing with heartbreak and all the stuff that happens in any of our lives that it's it's there's this such emphasis on being happy and getting happy and happiness and like we should all look like we're living in a tampon ad like we're about to kind of jump out a window <laughs> or with kind of a bungee jump attached to a bungee thing attached to us and be running through you know fields of flowers and that isn't actually anyone's existence and that idea of having a super happy life is a really new idea but it puts a lot of pressure on us to feel like we're not maintaining that or we're not fulfilling that and actually it's about I think trying to live hopefully and to try and hold on to hope that tomorrow might be better and to little, little small habits or changes if you're struggling and if you're trying to, if you're trying to get through something or get through the day, what kind of tiny habit can you change or maybe make this week, whether it's kind of mentioning that you're not feeling great to your wife, or your partner. And I know, again, from a lot of messages I got through that people are like, but I'm their rock. I am their I am their person that they need me to be strong to be a man to be the caretaker and if I admit that I'm not okay that'll terrify her or that'll terrify my partner or if it's a mother say for example postnatal depression we don't talk about a lot and people are like oh no if I admit that I'm not connecting with my baby I'm supposed to be the mother I'm supposed to be and all these supposed to be's Mm -hmm. but actually nobody cares as much as you do and everyone would rather you say I feel ugly I feel weak I feel lonely I feel whatever it is and then you can start to fix it and then you can start to but slow little habits of change and moments of hopefulness I think are all we can kind of hang on to because the the 
the facilities again they're they're not they're not there and they're not coming with all um, these with all, all these people getting in touch with you and you handling all of that has that part of it been been tricky you know that you've got people coming to you with the, the heaviest possible load and quite a lot quite a lot of those people is it difficult for you to know what to say you said obviously you don't just want to give a curt response you yeah. want to talk about it and it's great in a situation like this a lot of people can hear what you say but trying to get back to into people affected by this in an individual on yeah. an individual level well, I suppose what I realised is most people want to be listened to, hmm. um, as probably is, uh, uh, shown by how little you guys have spoken during this interview. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, um, uh, and I think what I had to sort of maybe uh, come to terms with it's that it's oh, I have read every single message. So if you have sent in a message to me, thank you very much, and I've read it. I just haven't been able to reply. Um, uh, and I have read every single message and reply on Twitter, every WhatsApp message, every Instagram message, every uh, Facebook message that you've sent. Um, and a, a big part of maybe the the point of me writing it was to start a conversation, uh, to have a place. If you want to, this random person off the telly who you see on random panel shows, if you want to just throw a message with all of your feelings at me, I might not reply, but bloody do it. Send it, get it off your chest, send it to a stranger, write yourself a letter or an email of hopefulness and what you want to achieve or all the bad things and hope no one will write. Like, do it. And there's also something very therapeutic about writing. And why I was quite honoured to get a lot of these messages is when you write something, when you write a story, you can give it a beginning, middle and end. Whereas when you just constantly talk about stuff like kind of now, it comes out in scattered thoughts and, and, and bits from then and bits from the future and bits from the past. But when you write something down, you have to give your brain a chance to give it a shape and a structure. And I think there's something lovely about that. Um, put, put, it, put it down in some way. Just get it out and type it or write it down, even if you delete it afterwards. And, and I think that's been maybe therapeutic for people to do. And that's just have to be maybe enough for the moment. What about for you, Ashling? You said to, in that Adam Buxton interview that you feel like a different person since the article came Completely out. Completely and utterly. Yeah, really? totally. Just, uh, I think it felt a little bit like... Um, like we sort of had the the funeral in a sense. It was an odd thing, that sort of release of something, uh, which you didn't know you'd been holding on to for so long. And I think it's the same with a lot of people when they start opening up or talking about something. I think I always thought that the world was going to kind of collapse. And it didn't. And you'll be grand. And I think that's what I realised talking about it because people are always like, oh, I was just afraid you'd get upset. I was just afraid I'd upset you. Or I, I was just so afraid we'd upset your mother. I was so afraid we'd upset you. We didn't want to make anyone upset. And if you don't get upset, there's no way you can get over anything. To think you can kind of uh, keep pushing through without ever getting upset is ridiculous. And it took me 30 years. But honestly, I just feel freer. I feel so free and that there's never going to be a shock thing now that's going to come around the corner like, so you were talking about your father and how your father, like it always, it felt like it was going to creep up on me whenever I was doing like Jonathan Ross or something like that, like I'd get a curveball question um, or that it would come up. Whereas now, like, and I think it's the same talking about that subject matter. At worst, you're just going to upset someone, but it'll be out there. And it is, you know, hard to upset one or, or spring chat on someone, but then it's past and it's gone and it, it is like little tumours being removed from your soul a little bit. Um, so I would highly advise everyone to write an article for The Guardian if you get a chance, you know. <laughs> no, it really is. I, we appreciate you talking about it. I know it, it's not easy at all. and It does help 
to have somebody like you talking about about this subject. You quoted in your piece a documentary, Grayson Perry, All yes. Man, yeah. which I had a look at, and it's really interesting. He talks about this. Well, it's, a, it's kind of a specific, the episode I watched was quite specific to the north of England. He goes up to Durham or somewhere like yeah. this and he finds out how the men who worked down the mines and all the rest of it had to, had to almost literally build up another skin. They had to build yeah. up a sort of a an armour against mm-hmm. the kind of hard life that they had to live. And that's been passed down through the generations, even yeah. though people don't really need that anymore. And it's actually not that healthy. And while that's specific to that area of England, maybe I think men would probably understand that, that there's... It's now it's not expressed in the ways it was then. Now it's maybe expressed as bravado or as just trying to make yeah. everyone not worry people and have people think and even that you're, in the you're strong and confident. Yeah. yeah, even in the language we use. I mean, there's so many euphemisms for doing something uh, badly. And one of them is being gay and one of them is doing something like a woman. And that's really awful because those words do creep into people's heads and they suggest that... The, an essence of someone. So to be me, and to, if Murph, if you were to do something like a woman, like I would do, it would mean you were doing something to a lesser degree or to a, um, a worse yeah. state. But also to say those sort of things to men means there's a fear in any way of of being um, being thought of as emotionally vulnerable or emotionally the word we'd use as weak. I think. With women, we definitely, uh, it, it's, of course, is uh, a lot of pressure on women for so many reasons as well. But our responsibility, I suppose, to our brothers and our fathers and our sons, we also have to create a space where men can be our pals and they don't have to be the towers of strength and that we allow ourselves to, we are hardy and we can do it on our own and we're grand. So our men in our lives can be also the vulnerable ones and to not kind of, you even see it in like passing comments about men on reality TV shows, a thing going, oh, he'd look after me or mm. he'd, as if that's the badge of success of a man, that he would have to be the, the caretaker. And that's a double-edged sword because it keeps women in a certain box, but it also keeps men in a certain box as well. And I think we all have to look at our language and what we expect of men and of each other. Okay, well, we'll tweet a link to, the, to your article if that's all right. With you guys you. on Twitter? Wow. Yeah, we go, we're on Twitter. We're all, we're all, all the mod cons <laughs> around here. Actually, you know? uh, 2015, actually. No, it really, is, it really is beautifully put together and I think we couldn't recommend it enough. So we'll tweet out a link to it. We'll take a break now. After that, we're going to have a look at this sporting life of Ashling B. RTE Radio 1. Second captain, first captain, whatever. The wonderful Ashling B is our guest this morning on Second Captain Saturday. We're getting a huge response to this chat. A couple of the texts coming in. So proud to be from Kildare when I see Ashling's success. What an inspiration. Another one saying I could listen to that Kildare woman forever. Tommy Conlon, the Times journalist, has tweeted at Second Captains. Lads, did I miss it? Or have you mentioned the name of Ashling's amazing former jockey mother? It's Helen O'Sullivan, Tommy. An absolutely amazing career, as you say. All right, Ashling, I think we've talked enough about your mum's achievements at this stage. I don't, out, I don't, I'd say way, she'll mom. disagree. <laughs> <laughs> we only gave it like half an hour. <laughs> How are your own horsemanship skills? Horsemanship skills, uh, not great. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I think the last time I was on a horse, I was about fifteen, and I went to um, go and ride out with my friend, and we went to the stables in Kildare. And I think, and really, was just like hang out with a couple of the cool lads. Oh yeah, you know they're cool lads. Like they sort of like one of them smoked, and they were just cool lads. And you're like, hi, cool lads. And we'd all thought we'd kind of run around in horses together. And they must have heard maybe who Mammy was. So I think they gave me a sort of madder horse than I had the skills to 
cope with because really I just sat at home all day watching like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and you know and <laughs> well, the works yeah exactly and um, so I got up on this horse and we were riding through the fields and they all set off into a canter and I tried to keep up with them but the horse just was like not today and sort of legged it off and I was like on the horse going hold on and the horse threw me off and I remember flying into the air going and landing straight with my spine onto a big stone ah. yeah and I had never had the wind knocked out of me before but I was sure I'd broken my spine and I I looked up kind of blearily at all the lads and they were going and I was like (gasps) and in my head I thought to myself like goodbye mommy (laughs) goodbye Sinead this cruel world hath ended me (laughs) and then I had to sort of make my way really hobbly back on the horse of the stage and I was so afraid that I'd hurt something and um, when uh, we got back to the stables it was a young lad who'd been mucking out the stables and I was like I fell I fell on my spine and I was like I think I fell in a stone and he was like no I think uh, I think he fell in a pile of shite (laughs) and it turns out that I'd fallen on a big uh, cow pat but I thought it was a stone but I'd fallen on it with such force that the (laughs) that the pile of shite had had permeated my my clothes and gone all the way to my skin and through like right through the am I allowed to say shite I'll give you the opportunity you've already of, said it twice so. oh yes, yeah, uh, yes. of uh, 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 this particular horse is already bolted yeah poo poo um, and it gone right through my clothes yeah, no I actually have my own horse riding story because <clears throat> I haven't actually been on uh, too many horses over the years you're legally too tall to go on a horse journey <laughs> see this is the problem six or four is the legal height I was in Cusco in Peru myself and my <clears throat> my wife decided we'd go for a horse ride in the Andes what a beautiful idea <laughs> so uh, I rock up to this uh, horse riding school right and uh, this tiny Andean man walks out <laughs> and he takes one look at me and it's <laughs> obvious that I'm by miles the tallest heaviest person that has ever rocked up to this horse riding school so he kind of makes it clear straight off the bat that obviously my wife is more than welcome on this horse riding uh, tour of the Andes but that there's no way they have no horse for me I can imagine you standing over the horse and it's back not even reaching up to your crotch (laughs) (laughs) you know like standing over a red setter so after an extended (laughs) delay out comes this beautiful little pony that uh, my wife gets on and then this absolute crock (laughs) of a horse comes out and honestly I don't know that a horse can eye roll but this this horse eye rolled so anyway this ancient old fossil comes up and I, I throw my leg over I, there was no fear of the horse running off on me anyway because he was 33 years old <laughs> and I weighed more than he did. So it was very sedate. What is your own sporting highlight? Surely you've had your sporting highlight already. That incredible uh, durability that you showed in getting up after falling into the Managing to absolutely off the yeah. horse that land. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure wherever that cow pat was, there's like a little blue plaque. Saying, <laughs> um, so my greatest sporting achievement to date is actually a genuine one and it's one of those things I'm purely proud of like I'm really proud of myself it was when I engaged in professional wrestling oh, yes. sorry I was a big wrestling fan growing up so we're right, we're right in my wheelhouse I feel like here. I should leave the room in Nerd Zone Tennessee yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, was it, what was the scenario how did you I am um, so in Edinburgh for the comedy festival they do this thing called the wrestling mm-hmm. and it's uh, comedians paired with professional wrestlers and we put on a three hour wrestling show and it is so good and it's not 
it, we, I trained for two months for it. I properly trained in a ring with real wrestlers. And if you look at my Twitter handle, if you go on Twitter and look at my um, profile page, you'll see me lifted above the air by Marty Skrull, who in ref- wrestling circles is a big deal. Right. And um, it was one of my, I can't, like I planned it all so well because wrestling is all about the dramatics and theatre. Mm. And I was like, delighted by that part. <laughs> it's can a, do. Yeah, it can do, thank you. <laughs> Jazz hands, ahoy hoy. And... Um, it was also really like a dance routine. Like you learn, like the moves are brutal and you're thrown onto the mat and thrown around. But I've always loved doing stunt work and all that kind of stuff. And at drama school, uh, we learned fighting and sword fighting and mm. stunts and rolling over. And I love all of that. And uh, um, yeah, we basically were like learning a dance routine, but with like these really some extremely overweight. Uh, one guy was called The Bulk. And when he got in the ring, we all had to go, whoa, whoa, and pretend to roll about. <laughs> Um, and uh, we had to learn these, yeah, essentially dance routines with these wrestlers because wrestling is a lot of pre pre learned moves. Sorry, 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 sorry. sorry, sorry. Uh, Owen, could you take off your headphones? <laughs> <laughs> well, what are we talking about here? Is it was this a tag team Royal Rumble? Uh, no. So I Survivor came down, Series cage match. It was in Edinburgh. It was in in a ring. Yep. And there were I think four or five professional wrestlers, and then a kind of roll of comedians who some would get thrown out and some of them wouldn't. I made it until the very end. I came through about a third through and made it to the very end. That is essentially a Royal Rumble. That's a Royal Rumble. Yeah. Oh, is that yeah, a Royal Rumble? Yeah, yeah. I came down. I was called Ashling Revenge for the Famine B. Strong. And I came down um, with 17 Irish flags sewn together like a cape. Yeah. And Catherine Ryan, the comedian, dressed up as a nun. And we had her little daughter Violet in a communion dress holding a potato and shaking it <laughs> angrily at the audience. And it, I came down holding a candle. Too um, subtle for the wrestling maybe though? It was just, it was a really beautiful metaphor yeah, actually. Yeah, nice. okay, and I think yeah. people really did think about the famine more after that. <laughs> uh, so, and it came down to like, Riverdance, you know, oh, I am coming to nourish you, cherish you. And we came down with the with the, with holding a candle, and then one, two, three, four, and then I climbed into the ring and like smashed this man over the head. He pulled me by the hair, swung me around, and I went on for ages. And then my final move was the bulk, who was this big lad who came in held me over his head in the air and twirled me round and then he threw me into the air and out of the ring and outside of it were four comedians who'd been trained to catch me but it yeah. looked like the like I was like a log knocking them over oh and so God. it was all really dangerous like people Jesus. broke their legs and stuff yeah. but, um, but uh, oh, all part of the game honestly I was so proud of it and I I know, I know some people other than Owen will uh, debate whether it was a sporting moment or not. Uh, I don't want to tell Murphy how to do his job here, but Kieran, if you don't, if the, if Ashley doesn't blow David Baddiel out of the water, the fix what, is in. As what far did as David Baddiel do? He, sco- he, sco- he went to Italy Literally with Arlo Hamlin and a few other lads and yeah. scored a goal in a he football sc- match. Scored a goal in his forties. Yeah. I mean, I see men in their forties doing five aside probably every day in my life. That is not an achievement. <laughs> Murphy, could you sports. please, yeah. could you please rank <laughs> this sporting life of Ashley B? You don't understand, I could have had class. You don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. What do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Right, Ashing, here goes. Oh, God, so so it's I've a... literally never been this nervous. I'm so nervous. <laughs> Just breathe. 
Uh, quick refresher on how we go about finding this year's greatest non-sports person, sports person. We will rank your sporting highlight mm-hmm. and identify the sports person that we feel most closely resembles your sporting personality. And then brutally, fashion a score out of 100 from that information. So after your sporting highlight, your time as Ashling Revenge for the Famine Bee is probably the best answer we've ever <gasps> got to that question uh, on this show. So, But it's also the patriotism that you showed as well as the scale. We saw that you had the words... Uh, visit Ireland emblazoned on the arse of your costume. Oh, I did, yeah, yeah. So it was to promote tourism in Ireland as well. Of course, yeah. you know. Uh, it's a clear sign that revenge for the famine was proud of her roots. So your dedication to your cause is at the very heart of your success. You worked hard, you got your reward. So from that point of view, taking into account your relentless work ethic, I'd have to say that the athlete you most remind me of would have to be three-time major golf champion, Podrick Harrington. You probably get that all the time. I do yeah. get that all the time. We yeah. both have very hammy, round faces <laughs> and pull-up polo t-shirts quite well. Wow. He has full Ireland on his gear as well. Not on the earth, but I mean, nevertheless, yeah. your endorsement was unofficial and written in pen as well. So it's been a triumph. You've earned oh 88 points 88. out of 100. What? Now, on the other hand, oh there is God. the whole wrestling is a sport, isn't a sport, so I may have to well, it is. deduct 10 points, giving you a final total of 78 points. Wait now, no, oh, oh, oh. no, whoa, 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 whoa. Ashling, Mark. revenge for the famine B. This has been your sporting life. You look actually genuinely annoyed. I'm, I'm, I want a steward's inquiry. You should have 10 more points, in my opinion. A round of applause, anyway, for a very grudging oh. Ashley B. For a very, very grudging. It's about time he played a bit of the Cranberries on Second Captain Saturday. That's Linger, in case you needed any reminding. Ashling Revenge for the Famine Bee is our new leader in the greatest non-sports person, sports person competition, thereby inflicting revenge for the famine on England's <laughs> David Bedeal. Somebody needs to send Bedeal the message there. Yeah. Sounds like you're loving our chat with Ashling, listening to the conversation, welling up, really insightful and moving, says Darren Cope. Really great interview with Ashling this morning. Kind, insightful, engaging. Best episode ever, uh, says another texter. As does Keen O'Donovan. Keen says, I've been a second captain's listener since 2004. Ashling, probably already my favourite interview. Great job all. So thanks very much for all of that. We do urge you to go along and see Ashling live at the Vodafone Comedy Festival in Dublin next weekend. We cannot guarantee that she'll be talking about her professional wrestling career, but we can guarantee that she'll be very, very funny. So she's on the Thursday and Friday nights. That's all in the Ivy Gardens in Dublin. Give Ashling, the people what they want, Ashling. Ashling spoke really powerfully there about her dad and about suicide in general. Just to say that if you are having your own struggles with your mental health, there are plenty of people you can talk to. Among them are the Samaritans. Their phone number is 116123 or you could go onto their website www.samaritans.ie I still haven't fully forgiven you Mer, for docking points based on her well, actually taking part in the noble art as it's called of mm. professional wrestling unbelievable stuff Okay Aunt, listen I mean if you th- if you want to take it all the way you know to like the court of arbitration for sport or something don't well, worry I, do I mean I'm prepared to I'm prepared to defend my methods to the hilt Can we better get moving What's that? Well the, you've heard the klaxon right? The klaxon's no. been sounded for all dubs to head to Oma for the big match tonight. Owen Mulligan's been shooting his mouth off. 
Right. Really? He's, yeah, he's urged that Healy Park should become a hostile, intimidating, and uncomfortable venue for the All Ireland champions. We're not taking that from Muggsy, are we, Ken? You with me? <laughs> <laughs> I assume it will be all those things. Well, yeah. I mean, it might be quite hostile for Tyrone on the pitch. So that's my only concern. That's my my one <laughs> fleeting concern about how good a sporting occasion Atmosphere this is. Atmosphere is one element. Oh, well, I on hope you enjoy it, though. I, well, you're yeah, on sure the road. Uh, it's going to be something new for you and your fellow Dubs fans so go for it thanks so much for all your messages a load of great stuff coming in today based on our chat there with Ashley hope you enjoyed the show thanks for thanks for everything really we're around all week with daily shows and Second Captains World Service just go on to secondcaptains.com for that we're back here next Saturday at 10am Mark Horgan and Simon Hick produce the show thanks to Sheila Newell on sound Killian Down for researching Marion Finucane is up next thanks Murph thanks Ken thanks Owen thanks Ken we'll see you next week Captain, first captain, whatever. They never got home, those, those, those boys. 